Scott Hanna is our guest. Mr. Hanna is the CEO of the Credit Counseling Society of BC. Uh, Scott, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Sterling. Good to hear from you. Well, it's great to have you with us. Now, yesterday we did a thing on the buzz lines here. Julie and I had opened up our phones and asked our listeners, uh, are you all shopped out or or is there still more gas left in the tank? It was Boxing Day, of course, and we were just testing the waters to see what uh, what energy was left to do some shopping. And Scott, all the calls we got were, no, I'm done. It's over. And then on the way home, I hear about our long lineups at MacArthur Glen out there by the airport so clearly there was still some shopping energy left but overall shopping is down by about a third across the board this covid year what does that tell you well it tells you that people are really taking stock of the situation and looking at the big picture and their financial circumstances and so i'm not i'm not surprised when i hear those numbers it's kind of what we've been hearing from our clients calling us that they're scaling back this year really paying attention to uh, the impact of the pandemic, their future, and looking after their financial circumstances overall. Although the lineups were busy yesterday, we yeah. were taking a couple things back, so a bit of a mixed message. Yeah, I know, because I left Pacific Centre uh, about 9 o'clock yesterday morning uh, to go home, and for a Saturday morning at 9 o'clock, there, there were more cars downstairs in the parkade than there have been in months. Scott, I'm curious, though, about the impact of COVID-19 on, on so many working Canadians, and even prior to Christmas, and those of us reprioritizing our, our available money for Christmas spending, how many people were coming to you over the course of the fall through October? in November before we even got to this month uh, in seriously dire straits? Yeah, we saw about a 20% uptake in terms of the numbers of clients impacted by the pandemic coming to us. And for, for many of these people, it's the fact that they've been dealing, dealing with it for months and they were still, uh, still dealing with it and weren't sure how to manage going forward. So there's a lot of uncertainty especially with many employers who are looking at the fact they were receiving government benefits, the fact they may be running out come the end of the year, mm-hmm. how it was going to impact them. So a lot of uncertainty for people in terms of what their future holds and looking forward to 2021, hopefully with a brighter perspective. But for many of those individuals, they weren't sure because they, they had exhausted their financial reserves and were now worried about what, what their future uh, would look like. Well, I suppose that's that's the big issue, and it's become quite the delicate balancing act for many over the past few months, Scott. It, it, it is managing diminished cash flow to try and make it work until the, there there's more money coming back in. It really is. And so what we've been advising consumers to do is, is to really set up uh, an emergency budget for the next six months in terms of what are their must-haves and they, can, they must have in terms of what things can they do without. And for some people who may be driving two cars, it's, it's scaling back down to having one car, mm-hmm. maybe parking one, getting rid of the insurance on the other, really setting those priorities. We've also been encouraging consumers to get rid of the, the extra stuff in our households that we don't need because it, it causes clutter and clutters of mind. And so we're encouraging people to do so. I know my own uh, younger son is taking advantage of that and uh, getting rid of everything, including Pokemon cards that he's had for years and um, made a few hundred dollars. But, you know, that cleansing process, really keeping it simple, back down to basics, having a plan to get to go forward with, 
helps consumers during this time. You got that, stability. got that Marie Kondo thing going on in the Hannah household there, have you? It's good. <laughs> it's all good. Well, again, clutter is, is it, it, it has a negative impact, regardless of how comfortable you may feel with it. It's still clutter, isn't it? Well, there's even for a lot of people, they store their things in storage lockers, and there's a cost to that. We don't see our stuff, but uh, there's a monthly cost to it. So really going through and identifying expenses in our budget that we don't need. And certainly what, uh, what the one thing that a lot of us have right now is time. And time can give us a real advantage in terms of setting priorities. What's important to us? How are we going to attack certain things? You know, for a lot of people who are carrying debt right now, and many Canadians are, you know, surprisingly, one of the, one of the uh, uh, things that we advise clients to do is during this time is save. Don't put everything towards your debt payments. Ensure you've got some cash reserves for unexpected emergencies mm-hmm. to deal with. It's such an important thing. And they can come up, and even over the holiday season, one of the things that many people really haven't factored in is the extra shipping costs they've had to pay this year when they purchase goods or send goods out. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> I know my, own, uh, my older son who had purchased something online for, for some clothing that he thought was a great deal, but it came with a $47 shipping cost. And it just eliminated the savings he thought he was getting on That's that. That's right. So much so, for that deal. So much for that deal. So a lot of us have those unexpected expenses. And so really, really understanding your costs. And certainly one of our biggest costs are food costs. And while we have the time, going through the flyers, going through online, looking for the best deal. So we're out shopping, making sure that we're getting the best purchases. I know when we were turning something yesterday, we were just noting the cost between two different prices of, of AirPods at Costco and at Best Buy. Ah, okay. And, and so, you know, if someone was out looking for that, hey, if they had taken the time to say, well, look, at there's a $20, $23 difference between the same product. Mm-hmm. And so taking that time to save us money on our priorities can really help us manage during certain times. Well, a lot of people are going to be taking some time over the next few days as we wrap up this bizarre 2020 year and making plans and certainly dreaming a lot about how much better 2021 can be. It can only be better, Scott. It couldn't possibly get crazier and worse. So as we plan, though, a lot of people are entering this new year in some financial difficulties. Things are stretched pretty thin. So again, this is when time taken to spend on planning is best spent. It is. You know, the one thing we encourage people to do is that when they're looking at their overall financial circumstances, keep in mind that you know money decisions should be financial, not emotional. You know, all we have to do is look back to March of this year when our stock markets crashed for a period of time. Mm-hmm. And there was a certain percentage of our population <clears throat> that locked in their loss by cashing out, as opposed to saying, I'm invested in good quality products and funds, I'm going to ride this up because we know that during these times that certainly the markets are volatile. Things go up and things go down mm. rather rapidly. But by staying the course, usually it ends up for the better. And certainly did for, for many people. And so looking at our financial circumstances, it's important to recognize that if you're carrying debt, it usually takes us a period of time to get into debt. It's going to take you a period of time to get out of debt. And it's about having a plan that's manageable, a plan that allows you to maintain a reasonable standard of living, while addressing your debt situation. And for many people who've got themselves into financial difficulty for the first time in their lives, and it's unexpected and not sure what to do, the best thing they can do is turn to someone for advice, 
whether it's a trusted family member who's good with their money or coming to an organization like ours where they can speak to someone and get some perspective because it's very difficult to deal with your situation when you're right in the middle of the storm. Getting advice from someone who's not feeling your imp- the direct emotional impact of a situation can help you in charting a course to, get for- to move forward. Joined on the line by Scott Hanna, the CEO of the Credit Counseling Society. And Scott, uh, Diana Lynn sent me an email during the break. We were talking about decluttering as such a positive move in so many ways. And she reminded me that the other positive is that stuff that you, the clutter that you clear out, if properly directed, can help somebody else like a hospice or a, a, a shelter of some kind. So it could be a win-win all around. Well, you know, and certainly during this hardship right now, many people are really focused on people who have, who have been impacted. And so we're looking at donations that food banks are up, but getting rid of a lot of things that we can repurpose for others makes a lot of sense. And so connecting with different charities is a great thing that we can do that makes, uh, helps a lot of people and makes us feel good as well. Scott, your typical credit card, your Visa, your MasterCard, et cetera, the typical interest rate is 19%. At the bank, you can get a mortgage for less than 2%. So if you're having difficulty financially, how can people uh, take advantage of these historic all-time low interest rates to their advantage to help consolidate and clear out the mess? Well, what we always encourage people to do is before they take on uh, or consolidate their debt is really gain control of their overall monthly expenses, get a budget, understand how much money is coming in and where is it going, how much do we need Oftentimes, when people look to take advantage of low interest rates, they go, this is great. I'm paying 20% of my credit card. I'll just get a line of credit. I'll just factor this into a mortgage and consolidate it. But they go back to the same ways of spending. And in many cases, what happens is that over a period of time, they reaccumulate balances on their credit cards again because they didn't have a budget in the first place. So gaining an understanding of your monthly expenses first, how much you've got available to deal with your debt situation is priority number one. Once you've done that, then looking to take advantage of the low interest rates, perhaps by getting a, a line of credit, but not falling prey to the trap of just paying the minimum payment, paying a set payment, understanding with the amount of debt that you want to consolidate, how long will it take you to get out of that debt and putting that payment into your budget each and every month so that within the period of a, a few short years, you've paid it off. We don't typically uh, advocate consolidating your debt within a mortgage because while the rates are low, you may, in many cases, are now taking that debt and repaying it off over 20 years. Exactly, right, yeah. And you've got to be careful of that. So taking on a loan specific for the amount of debt you have, and while you're doing that, putting your credit cards away uh, is a smart money play. And so perhaps taking advantage of a line of credit that may have a 5 or 6% rate of, um, of interest as opposed to 20 is a great way to reduce the time period it takes to pay off your debt. Scott, what happens if you're already in a serious pickle? If I mean, if Christmas has, been, has come and gone and you really haven't been able to participate because you had no dough. You're just flat broke and you owe everybody everything. The phone calls are turning ugly. You're getting legal notices in the mail. Everybody is after you. Everybody is angry at you. What do you do? Well, it's, it's important to recognize that you're not in this loan. There are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Canadians in the same situation, having difficulty just making ends meet. Mm-hmm. And it's important to set your priorities and, and ensure that your creditors understand your situation. Oftentimes, when creditors are calling, we don't want to take that call. We don't want to give them the information, but understand that we owe them the money. We haven't made our payment, so the best, we can do, the best thing we can do is be upfront and honest. 
I'm not paying you from a lack of desire. I'm, I'm not paying because I just don't have the ability. Here's my situation. So given the verification of your overall circumstances, and if you can, working out a reduced repayment plan until your circumstances improve. The worst thing a person can do if their circumstances have been impacted, especially by the pandemic right now, is make a final decision. Think, I'm just going to go bankrupt. Mm-hmm. When your circumstances change for the better, so you, have a, you may be unemployed today, but perhaps in 90 days you'll be employed again. And certainly we're seeing our unemployment rate is, is edging down from its high in May. It's down below 9% right now. So um, <clears throat> there are opportunities for the future. Certainly most economists are, uh, predict that come the second quarter of 2021, we're going to see our economy rebound. And I hope that's true. Yeah. But, but during that time, we've got to have an emergency plan, speak with the creditors, outline our circumstances. But if you're feeling overwhelmed, then I would strongly encourage you to speak with a professional organization like ours. Mm-hmm. Talk to a counselor. They'll gain an understanding of your overall situation. You may not be able to fully deal with the situation today, but they can give you a plan for the, for the immediate three to six months until your circumstances are known for the future. Once, you know, once you've regained employment, know what your income is, that's when you're in a position to make a final decision as to how you're going to deal with your debt. Sure. Scott, um, certain uh, trustees, for example, can make, you were talking about a, a, some kind of formal arrangement to repay your debts to your creditors. Uh, if you go to a trustee, they'll do that in the form of a, a consumer proposal, which has formalities and official stuff attached to it. Can the, can the Credit Counseling Society also arrange a formal debt repayment program like that, that uh, both sides have to agree to and then get honored? Oftentimes, we're able to help a client to restructure their debts under what we call a debt management program, right? Yeah, where, where creditors will reduce your monthly payment or accept a reduced payment and waive ongoing interest. So you're able to repay the principal on your debt over a period of time. And oftentimes, it's that break that, that consumers need. Right now, we're helping a little over 10,000 people with a debt management program. And during, our, and during the time that we've been in operation, which is we're going into our 25th year next year, we've helped consumers repay over half a billion dollars worth of debt by having a reduced payment, really have, uh, sticking to a budget that um, looks after all their basic needs for them, and having a plan for the future. So we can do that. And, but for many Canadians, it's just a matter of having a budget. Mm-hmm. Something I haven't had for, forever and really understanding how do I manage my money better? You know, oftentimes people complain that they have no savings because once they paid all their bills, there's nothing left. It's because they put their savings at the bottom of their budget instead of at the top of their budget. Aha. The old so pay yourself the first saying, principle, right? No, no matter what, the first 5% is coming off the top and going into savings. I work hard for my money. My money should work hard for me. All right, Scott, I have to leave it there. That's that's a great way to leave it. I mean, if there's a whole lot of other stuff on your plate, don't worry. And don't forget to pay yourself, too. Scott Hanna, great to have you with us. The website, friends, is nomoredebts.org. Debts, plural. Nomoredebts.org. Scott, thank you. Take care. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And our guest joining us from Ontario, the Guelph, in fact, is Andrew Bailey. Professor Bailey teaches philosophy and is the Associate Dean of Research and Grad Studies in the Faculty of Arts at the University of Guelph. And Professor Bailey recently wrote a piece that caught our attention in a big hurry for theconversation.com entitled, The Argument in Favor of COVID-19 Immunity Passports. Professor Bailey, Andrew, welcome. Good morning. 
Thanks, Sterling. It's a pleasure to chat with you. Well, it's good to have you with us. And and the title, of course, the first thing I thought when I saw the title and read the article immediately, devoured it in seconds. But I thought as soon as I saw the title, it, the argument in favor of COVID-19 immunity passports, my first reaction, Andrew, was, well, who on earth would be against it? Oh, well, it's interesting you should say that because uh, this, the piece I wrote has raised a certain amount of controversy and certainly it was an extremely controversial um, idea back in the spring. So, uh, you know, around the time when, when COVID was really starting to, to sink in, when right. the scale of the pandemic was becoming obvious, um, the idea was raised that, that uh, uh, if we could only find out which, among, which members of the population were immune and we could certify those people as immune, we could send them back out into the economy, we could get them back to work, we could get them back to a normal life. Um, that idea at that point was extremely controversial. It, it was. was. very uh, problematic it, to think about you know splitting the population in that way it was and it was discussed fairly widely i can recall sort of casually type conversations about it through the summer when we were sort of relaxing a little bit we were outdoors that helped uh but then it, 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 as you look around nobody acted on moving to paper or some kind of certificate of immunity are we any closer now so I think um, a couple of things have changed. So I think we are closer now. So one thing that's changed is, of course, is vaccination. So one of the serious concerns with the idea uh, earlier in the year was that uh, it would be unfair to uh, to privilege people who had uh, caught the disease and then recovered. That there was a kind of arbitrariness about which people had, had um, been exposed and recovered, and also that it would encourage people, it would potentially encourage people to go out and become infected so that they could then recover and become certified immune. So with, with vaccination, that's much less of a worry because, of course, uh, there's much greater control over who receives the vaccination. Uh, it, it can be done much more equitably. So, so that's less of a concern. Indeed. And of course, during the summer when we were having those casual conversations, Andrew, the vaccine was an abstract at the time, was it? We, exactly. knew, that, we knew that it was a, a lab a project going on literally in thousands of laboratories around the world, but that we were no... We we weren't terribly close to it at that time, were we? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And of course, it's, it's not at all abstract now. Right? Exactly. We're starting to see it roll out. The other thing that, that I think has changed, perhaps ironically, is that um, because of the, the scale of the pandemic and also because of the, the, the uh, coming online of vaccines, there's going to be a lot more people in the population who are immune for a variety of reasons. So people who've been vaccinated, people who've recovered, uh, people who might have had uh, antibody therapy, so there'll be, uh, you know, a significant proportion of the population who who are immune, and those people are going to want to behave differently. They want to live their lives differently, and there's going to be strong incentives for, for example, businesses to treat these people differently. Exactly, and we can get into the uh, the nuts and bolts because, of course, the lawyers are already all over this. We have a, a show here on CKNW on the weekends called the Employment Law Show, and they're staffed by some pretty good people. And Andrew, they're already <laughs> all over this. Well, what if, what if I don't want to take the vaccine? What if I have you know religious grounds? And yeah. uh, can my employer force me? And you know, the employer on the other hand has a duty to ensure to everyone in the workplace that they're in the safest possible environments. So all sorts of conflicts arising and of course so very few of us have actually had the shot but now we know it's on the way 
That's right. Yes, that's right. So it, it's a looming issue. We're going to have to, to think about these things now before the, 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 the decisions are forced on us. So as far as uh, the, uh, the argument, again, in favor of COVID immunity passports, the title of your article at theconversation.com, uh, the, uh, this piece, I assume, Andrew, came out of some kind of uh, exposure to the opposite point of view. Yes, that's right. So, so um, I thought that, that some of the arguments against immunity passports um, back in the spring were, um, were not sound. I thought that they were a bit hasty. So mm-hmm. there, were, there were concerns about it being unfair, for example. And I'm not sure I think that's persuasive. I think that um, there's a genuine difference between people who are immune and people who aren't, and it's not unfair to treat those people differently. And, and the use of the word privilege, uh, you, which you've done a couple of times, with respect to immunity or not, struck me as being odd. Why was that employed? So I think it cuts both ways. So I think uh, you can think of it as a privilege um, if you are being treated differently because you're immune. So the fact that, that people who are vaccinated might be able to travel, whereas other people might not be able to, um, people who are self-employed or need to return to a workplace might be able to do that if they're immune, whereas other people might not be able to. We might possibly see a situation just emerging organically, whether it's decided or not, that these people can can attend entertainment venues, for example, that other people can't. So it seems likely that there's going to be certain privileges that will be connected to immune status. And really, the point of the article is that we should think about that. We should think about what privileges are appropriate and how we want to make sure they're distributed fairly. Uh, Let me take you back uh, several decades. Uh, There was a point in the 1950s and I believe the 1960s, specifically here in North America, when the polio virus was rampant in our population. And it was determined by governments in those days that in order to attend school, children needed to be vaccinated against polio. The edict was quite clear. If you did not receive a vaccine against polio, you did not go to school. Full stop. What uh, do you see that kind of um, arbitrary uh, uh, regulation edict coming forward at some point down the road in our society, perhaps relating to school children, Andrew, but not necessarily exclusively to them? Uh, yes, I do. I mean, I, I don't know that I would I would call it arbitrary necessarily, but I do think that that we're going to see uh, uh, requirements that people can can establish that they are immune before they can do certain things. Right. So certainly, uh, going back to school be, would be a good example of that. And the thing that that I'm sort of concerned about is that we should. Um, not just let that happen. So we shouldn't necessarily, I mean, so maybe school boards are not the greatest example, but perhaps we shouldn't let individual employers make those decisions about how they're going to differentially treat their employees. We want to have a framework where we're doing it in a way that is is equitable, right, that actually serves public health needs and doesn't disadvantage people who don't need to be disadvantaged. Indeed. So, and in fact, some of the lawyers that we've talked to already say, uh, in law, it, it is pretty clear that an employer would have some rights with respect to demanding uh, vaccination on the part of his or her employees, but exemptions could be approached and appeals could be raised, not under the labor law, Andrew, but under the Human Rights Act. 
Yeah, that, that's, I, that's my understanding as well. And I think um, uh, that that might turn out to be a bit of a grey area. So, I mean, one of the key issues is is whether it's reasonable to expect that an employer could provide an accommodation rather than, for example, uh, letting someone go because they are unable or refuse to have a vaccination. And right. What that accommodation looks like needs to be decided sort of case by case. It's not something that we, we sort of know ahead of time necessarily. And you can certainly see those test cases already being lined up almost as we speak, can't you? Yeah, yeah, I think you can. Yes, absolutely. So what's the timeline on all of this with respect to the amount of time we have left as citizens to determine how we're going to approach this before someone says, you either have to do this or you've got to do that? I think it's it's coming quickly. So I, I think that... Um, we, we're already seeing um, particular industries, particular employers make decisions. Um, so uh, uh, theater chains, for example, or airline organizations Especially. are making decisions about yep. how they're going to treat people differently. So, and uh, uh, right now, not that many people are vaccinated across the, across the globe. Sure. Um, a fair number are immune because they've recovered, but we don't have a good way of, of assessing that. So that's another issue whether we want to um, lump together people who've been vaccinated versus people who are immune for other reasons and somehow find a way of certifying them all together. Um, but it's coming fast. Um, so I think that uh, we don't have much time before we, we are, you know, the pressure of circumstance is going to force a hand unless we make some decisions. And, and in Canada, it sounds pretty much at the rate of acquiring vaccines from our international providers that uh, the, the, the timeline is pretty much determining itself, isn't it? As we're, for, for example, from Moderna in the month of January, expecting close to a million doses, plus there's more from Pfizer, plus there are more uh, options coming online from other vaccine manufacturers. Still, we're going to we're thirty eight million strong. It's not going to happen overnight, but that clock is ticking, isn't it? It is, and I think there's going to be a bit of a watershed moment when we move beyond vaccinating uh, just sort of first line workers and uh, the, the especially vulnerable, and start moving the vaccination out into the more general population. Right. That's when the issues are going to get trickier because then you're going to have to you know decide between. Um, you know, uh, two adults of working age, who one of whom is vaccinated and the other isn't, decide how to treat them differently. Sterling Fox with you, joined by Andrew Bailey, Professor of Philosophy and Associate Dean of Research and Grad Studies at the University of Guelph, who is the author of The Argument in Favor of COVID-19 Immunity Passports, which is up right now. You can read it at theconversation.com. And Andrew, in the middle of the article, you talk about uh, the controversy over uh, immunity passports, and you boiled it down to three types of basic objections one they're ineffective two they're immoral or illegal and three they'll contribute to further inequity can we take those one at a time they're ineffective how could you possibly get an immunity passport after having been vaccinated that is ineffective yeah so uh, there's a couple of issues there so and one uh, is is not really uh substantive anymore. So the, the original worry was that the test that we have for um, uh, um, antibodies, uh, so the, the tests that are available to check that you actually are immune, mm-hmm. aren't 100% effective. So uh, the, the concern was that, uh, particularly early in the year when they were even less effective, the concern would be that you'd be certifying a whole bunch of people as immune who aren't immune. So that's less of a worry because the tests are better. And oh, so these... somewhat... 
This is, sorry, this is a rolling list of objections that have been basically going since this conversation began over the summer. So the ineffective aspect has been pretty much a set aside would be a good way to put it, right? I think it has. I mean, there still are those concerns because you still have to uh, test people to to see whether the vaccine has uh, is being effective. Of you course. have to make sure that they're remaining immune. And there's also questions about whether they can then infect other people. So there's a remaining worry that even if you yourself are immune, you might be able to carry the virus and pass it on to other people. And I don't think it's been firmly established that that can't happen, even if you've been vaccinated. Okay. So people who've been vaccinated still need to be careful. Yes. Uh, that that's true, and that's that. It's it's not an automatic, uh, you, you know, you you uh, license to be um, uncareful. <laughs> I know that's not a word, but you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I do know what you mean. I, I think that's exactly right, and I think it's important to emphasize that that people who've been vaccinated, at least until we we can be sure that they're not uh, themselves infectious, need to continue wearing masks and and physically distancing. That's right. And the other point was, of course, contributing to further inequity. We've talked about the inequity. You're unequal if you've been vaccinated or not. There's no equality there. You're either one or the other. And uh, as it goes forward and more of us get vaccinated, the inequity will be more obvious. It will. I, I think that's the, the key remaining worry. Right. So, so I do argue that we should um, we should basically implement a system of, of immunity certification that is appropriate to do so. But we need to take care that we do it in a way that, that protects people who um, are underprivileged. So generally speaking, what we see time and time again is that when you introduce a new uh, element of privilege, the people who already have tend to get more, right? The people who already have privileges tend to, to suck up the, the new privilege and it just makes inequities worse. But I, we I, actually have seen that in history with immunity certification. I suppose. I know, but my, my only, uh, and it's not even an argument, Andrew, it's simply the fact that in this universal approach that we're ostensibly taking with respect to the COVID-19, everybody that wants one gets one. It's basically the mantra so far. Yeah, I agree. So this this is why I think, although it's a concern, although we need to be careful, is not a reason to turn away. It's sure. not a reason to, to not do it. So yeah, so one one factor here is that hopefully it's time limited. So you know, this time next year, hopefully a lot of people, most of the population, at least in Canada, will be vaccinated, mm-hmm. and um, the inequities, if they have been created, will start to go away. One of these uh, one of these uh, remedies that uh, this will provide to us for those of us who have been cooped up since March is the ability to travel again. So once we get this uh, uh, herd immunity or certainly significant enough portion of the population vaccinated and some documentation available to those who have been so we can travel, what do you think it's going to look like? A credit card, a chip to be put in your passport, a separate document like the old international vaccination certificate? What do you what's your take? I think that's a that's a great question. That's a difficult question to answer. So there's been a lot of interest in um, in electronic passports, mm-hmm. so having something on your phone, for example, that that will um, uh, will certify you. Um, there's a lot of issues here. So one issue has to do with making sure that they're um, they're valid, that they're supported by by a government agency, right? So that um, you can't just go and um, forge it. You can't tell somebody you're exactly. vaccinated. You have to actually be vaccinated, right? Um, and there's another set of issues about um, surveillance, right? So there the were worries when China introduced a similar kind of uh, passport uh, in the summer, 
Um, it was monitoring its citizens to see what kind of health status they had. And there's, there's concerns about, about um, you know, the government uh, being able to uh, check up on you and check that, that you are uh, who you say you are and that you have the immune status that you say that you do. Mm-hmm. So the the, the I, how how long do you think, by the way, it's going to be before? And I, I know that of all places, uh, Estonia is certainly uh, conducting mm-hmm. testing and uh, international uh, certification of vaccination uh, strategies. Uh, that's a very tiny country, but uh, there somebody's got to start, and they they already have. So how long do you think it's going to be before, uh, say, a G twenty country comes to terms with some kind of legislation? legislation regarding immunity passports yeah i'm I'm afraid i think it's going to take a while so i I think it it ought to happen soon i think that that, um, the technology is there i I, uh, understand that a variety of technology companies have been working on this for some time but this controversy that we spoke about at the beginning of the conversation still persists i think that um, people worry about having um, an app placed on their phone that will um will uh, tell employers a, a medical piece of medical information about them, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I guess I don't know the answer to that. I think that um, one of the, the aims of the article I wrote was to urge that we should be moving on this, but I, I haven't seen a lot of movement. And, so I think that we're going to be behind the behind the behind the game here. And so, is it likely that a European country will t- will take the ball and run with it, and everyone else will follow? Maybe Estonia, followed by I don't know Italy, something like that. Yeah, it could be. Estonia has a has a pretty advanced digital economy, so I, I mean, Estonia certainly is going to be in the vanguard for sure. So, uh, as far as we're going to just a few seconds here, and I, I, just a takeaway from this conversation: as Canadians get ready to roll up their sleeves and take their turn, are you at least comfortable that a significant majority of Canadians are going to take advantage of it? I hope so. I really do hope so. I. I, I um, there are worries that there's going to be a fair proportion of the population who are who have concerns about vaccination, might have concerns about immunity certification, but I hope that that proportion isn't too great. And I think we need to do everything we can to to persuade people that the vaccine is safe and that it's a it's a public health necessity that as many people as possible who are able to get the vaccine do do so. Well, you're a pretty persuasive guy, Andrew Bailey. We do appreciate your uh, jumping in and helping the wheels to keep turning this morning. Uh, Excellent to have you, and a happy new year to you. We'll hope to speak to you again sometime in the new year. My pleasure. Happy New Year to you as well. Thanks very much. Andrew Bailey from the Department of Philosophy at the University of Guelph. The piece is The Argument in Favor of COVID-19 Immunity Passports. You can read it at theconversation.com. Well, it's the last Sunday morning of 2020 and a very appropriate day to invite this guest back onto the program. Julie Romanowski is a mom, a coach, an educator, an author and speaker, and also founder of Misbehavior, parenting coach and consulting service. Services. Julie Romanowski, welcome back and good morning. Good morning, Sterling, and thank you for having me back. I'm so sorry we're not uh, face-to-face like usual. Well, that's the most fun, isn't it? But it's great to have you back <laughs> anyway. How was Christmas at your house? You have a son. How did it go? Uh, very well, very well, thank you. Uh, very quiet, though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not what I'm used to with a big family. So uh, it was definitely different, but uh, I welcomed it. I accepted it after a bit of a tantrum myself uh-huh. earlier on. <laughs> 
And uh, no, it turned out to be really nice. Yeah, but it was different, wasn't it, Julie? That's a good place to start this year because it was uh, 2020 has this has just been a really off the wall, completely different year. And of course, Christmas included. And for a lot of us, including in my house, we didn't have the whole family together. Family members in Mission and White Rock stayed there. They didn't come yeah. for dinner, and uh, they're they're not little kids like your guy, uh, but they, you know they're uh, family members and quite disappointed. So I suppose your disappointment you manage it a little better as you get older but you know when you're a small person and those sorts of disappointments come at christmas time it's it's a little you have to take a few moments and explain that stuff don't you you sure do um but before the explanation um and this is the part that i love the most it's giving space and time for that child to feel the feelings Mm -hmm. very often we want to yeah 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 sweep it out you know get rid of those bad nasty feelings we never want to see our children be sad or upset but that is the whole point. No one wants to see a child cry, but it is important for the child to feel the feelings of disappointment, of frustration, of sadness, so that they can learn what it's like to cope with that feeling and that it's an okay feeling to have. Well, there you were having a little tantrum of your own because your, <laughs> your, your Christmas isn't going to be. So you blew your stack a bit, and I'll bet your son watched it and, and, and decided, well, if mom's going to get a little honked off, so am I. And, and that's, I mean, we're all a little upset by circumstances this year, aren't we? Very much so. I had my tantrum back in uh, in December there when they made the announcement that Christmas was going to be very restricted. Yep, you um, and a I lot of other of, people. Yeah, I kind of felt it coming. I knew something was going to happen, but um, it took me a while to adjust. And I and I did I did have the tantrum, um, not in front of my son, so that oh. was good. But I did feel those feelings, and I didn't like it. But mm -hmm. I did it, and I moved on. And you know what? After we accept it, and that's the key word here, after we accept our reality and the circumstances we are in, we can then find ways to adapt to enjoy or find the joy in that. Right. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, that's a good point, because if you're all upset and you're all angry and disappointed and depressed and all the rest of it, and if you and, and, and all mom and dad want you to do is just, oh, come on now, just give us a big smile, uh, you, mm -hmm. know, uh, you know, allow that child to process all that stuff and be disappointed and be sad. Yeah. And then once that uh, circumstances, that uh, level is, is achieved, and sometimes it takes seconds, other times it takes a couple of hours, then mm -hmm. you're there. And then you've got a, a set of feelings or new circumstances to learn how to manage. Yes, and that is the magic. <laughs> and a lot of people will say, no, that's crazy. Otherwise, the kid's going to be uh, sad and upset and whining the whole time. And that's actually not true. That's a myth. Right. When we allow a child to feel their feelings in the space and time that they need, it's actually not that long. And they then get over it. And then we have a child who's open and willing and ready to accept and adapt as needed. Um, very often when we interrupt that process for them of feeling it all the way through, mm -hmm. that's what prolongs it. So we jump in to try and stop that whining and we say, okay, well, uh, let's do this or go to your room or whether it's something positive or negative. Right. But then what it looks, it appears, the optics appear that, it, the child has stopped whining, but they haven't because it hasn't fully processed. So you've just pressed pause, and that whining will return and come back in different circumstances 
throughout that day or throughout the week or months even. Mm -hmm. So when we give the time and space for them to feel it all the way through, consider it done, and then we move on. Let's talk a little bit about uh, homeschooling and they hold because a lot of British Columbia kids, especially elementary school aged kids, Julie, are in a hybrid situation where they go to school on maybe Mondays and Thursdays and uh, Tuesday, Wednesday and Friday. They're at home on the computer. That sort of mix that they're doing. A a few lucky ones are going to school like uh, like normal, as it has always been. But that's a smaller group compared to the rest of us. So uh, creating an environment at home, you can't replicate a classroom at your home. But what yeah. what modifications work? Uh, you, you make a very good point, and I'm not sure everybody realizes that. You will never replicate school at home. And so it's important to realize that first and then adapt to what you can do within your home environment. If you're trying to replicate the classroom and start putting up posters yeah. and, and you know, the alphabet and getting desks and all, it just will never be the same. It doesn't have the same charge, doesn't have the same energy. So what you want to do is create a space at home that is allowing learning to take place. It's very different than creating a classroom environment. Mm-hmm. And so that could look very different for a lot of kids. Some kids need to tune everything out and be in a little room with nothing else going on in the computer and their books and that's it. Very sterile environment. And then there are other children that like to learn at the coffee table or the kitchen table as though nothing is different or changed. So unfortunately we don't we may not know what our child likes or or sort of prefers. Mm -hmm. And we may have to test out a few things. A little trial and error, huh? Trial and error. You may also have a few children One likes it this way, one likes it that way. Yes. But it's important to remember there is no standard. There is no, well, you have to do it this way. You take the child's lead, and you watch and observe their behavior to see where they're sort of maximizing um, their, their efforts and stuff like that and see what's going on with them. And then go with that. So you really want to sit back. As the parent, observe your child or children, because they could have very different styles. Indeed. And then take their lead and say, you know what? This kid loves reading with the TV and radio blaring, which I don't like, but it works for him. Right. And, and realize that it's, it's what works best for you, your child, in that environment. And it might look very different than uh, your cousins, your neighbors, your, you know, your friends and stuff like that. And that part doesn't matter. You have to do what works for the child. Otherwise, it'll be constant resistance and a constant battle. You've been talking to a lot of parents. You're a parenting coach, along with being a, a children's behavior specialist. And, and, and now we've had a few months to adjust to all of this, particularly since, mm-hmm. uh, since September and things. have. have there's a, there, it, we call it the new normal, but there is at least a new routine to it all. As, mm-hmm. as we go forward, and, and, uh, and, and other provinces, we're lucky here in B.C., it appears that we're going to be able to pretty much stick to our school ske- schedule, unlike other provinces where kids have been asked to stay home for an extra couple of weeks uh, but what going forward with this hybrid some schooling some homeschooling model what are moms and dads telling you they're having the toughest time with julie the toughest time would be the work-life balance so as a parent you know you have you still have to do your work most of them working from home this is where the sort of challenge arises mm-hmm. and you have a child or more than one child at home doing their quote-unquote work, schoolwork. 
and then you are at home. So you've got all your house stuff you've got to worry about. And so parents, mostly women, but I've also spoke to a, a, have spoken to a lot of fathers. They're like, how do I manage it all? Exactly. Because we've all been in this um, change. Everyone's environment is different. And we're all sort of crammed into one place, and we have to still fulfill those same expectations. And I think that's where exactly where we have to go, is we had an expectation where I would go to work or to the office, my child would go to school, sure, you know, and my spouse would also go to their place of work. And we had a routine and an expectation. We're now trying to fulfill the same expectation with a completely different environment and routine. And some employers aren't realizing that, some schools aren't realizing that. But this changes the expectation. You, you're not necessarily able to pull off the exact same role you had when you went to your office and your child went to school. There will have to be a lot of adaptations. Mm-hmm. So if it's the full eight hours you used to work isn't working at home and you have to chop it up or just decrease hours, you may have to do that. If your child had a full school load and that they're expected to finish it, they may not have the time or the environment to finish it. So their workload may decrease or just look different. And I think we have to get really honest with ourselves and communicate that to employers and teachers and everybody else. I'm not able to pull off the exact same thing I used to in that different environment. And that can take off a lot of pressure because I think people are working twice, if not three times as hard as they used to, to try and pull off what they what they were doing. Yeah. Did you ever see that TV show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? <laughs> yes. You know how many Canadian parents show. have learned in the past to, to, to six to 12 months? The answer is no. <laughs> how many people have called you up going, I can't do grade six math. I'm sorry. It, I used oh, to be gosh. able to. And on and on it goes. And that's just parents putting yeah. pressure on themselves too, isn't it? It is. Um, and I, and I have, I've decided... Uh, that I am not a teacher, and I, w- I won't know all that stuff that my son brings home. Yeah. And I'm going to do what I can to support him. And if his, it, he isn't struggling, but if he was, I would say, he's struggling with the way this is all working out to the teacher and see what we can work on and adapt. But I'm not going to step in to try and make make it like it should be right. and put that pressure on myself. Absolutely not. Cause I'm juggling a whole other set of balls of work and life and myself and health and all the rest of it. Just mm-hmm. coping with this. Julie Romanowski is on the line as misbehavior returns to CKNW weekend mornings. And Julie, you've got a Facebook group called burnout prevention for educators, teachers, caregivers, and parents. And you also have the burnout prevention program. Now we didn't have to cook meals for 12 or 16 people over Christmas this year. So uh, is, has that reduced the burnout factor for some, or is it still very real and very, very upfront for many? It's very real, very upfront, and and increasing every single day. Um, yes, physically we haven't had to cook the meals or even gone shopping for all the presents and this type of thing, but um, the mental load, the emotional um, sort of <clears throat> impact is is at its highest than it's ever been. And so that's what's important to remember with uh, being burnt out or on your way to being burnt out. Um, is realizing that 
um, what's going on behind the scenes. So you might be sitting this whole Christmas holiday, you know, at the table, in front of the TV, in front of your computer doing Zoom calls. You might be sitting and not being as physically active. True, yep. But the, the mental load is heavy because for one simple reason, it's different. There's, it's a change. It's not what we're used to. Sure. So we're asking our brains and our bodies to work in different ways. The other thing is, too, we have running in the background this huge question mark of what's the new year going to be like? Is 2021 going to be better or worse? When are these restrictions going to happen? Are kids going back to school? Oh, my goodness, spring break. Are we going on our family vacation? Yeah. <clears throat> so there's a lot of that going on that we don't even realize. And so that's what's exhausting. Picture that just being an, a machine, just on, 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 on. Whether you're sleeping or sitting or eating, that's constantly happening. Mm-hmm. And so that's what's exhausting. And so you could be doing absolutely nothing physically and go, why am I so tired? You might be napping more. You might be zoning out more. And that's because there's a huge and heavy load that's been happening all year. And it's, there's no end in sight. Well, that's the uncertainty, isn't it, Julie? The, the, and, and, and out of uncertainty, the typical or one of the more typical human reactions to uncertainty is anxiety, isn't it? Yes. It, that's what's skyrocketing. We were already anxious as a group. <laughs> now we are even more so because that uncertainty, the, the fear of the unknown. And a lot of positive sort of vibes are going out there that 2021 is going to be awesome and it's going to be terrific and it's going to be the savior for this horrible 2020. Uh, not necessarily, you know, and I don't want to be a pessimist, but we have to also be realistic because we're setting ourselves up for even more, possibly even more disappointment. So staying positive in the moment, staying positive right now, today, that's what's important. What am I in control of today? Well, not much. Mm-hmm. I'm staying at home. Uh, that's right. <laughs> what, am I, what am I in control of tomorrow? And that type of thing. Don't go too far into the future because that's going to create even more anxiety. Julie, what, and, happens, what happens when you recognize someone in your... Now, you do this professionally. People come to you for help. But what happens when you're just a person with someone in your life that you know that you can see the slow fuse lit and burning and it's not going to end well unless some kind of intervention takes place? You know this person is, mm-hmm. is just anxious and, and just wound up so tight you can... If you touch them, they, they might explode. So what, yeah. can you, what can you do to be that helpful person in that anxious person's life? Oh, great, great one. And it's validation. Going up to that person, whether it's a coworker, family member, you know, neighbor, whatever it is, and say, you know what? I get it. This is tough. Holy moly. And, and if you know them really well, mention it. Yeah, your workload is off the charts. Sure. You must be exhausted. You must be burning out. And, and say it with respect. You don't go up to a random person and go, wow, you look bad. <laughs> yeah, you, you look know? terrible. <laughs> That's right. But if it's someone you know and you can say to them, just validate what they're going through. Validate their experience. You don't have to rescue them. You don't have to save them or solve their problems. Well, That's it. And so, and the question, my question wasn't how to, you know, how to fix this friend. It was just how to be a friend. Yeah, and it's through validation. And and my favorite line that I say to anybody and everybody, including children, is, I can't take this pain away from you, but I can sit here beside you while you go through it. 
And that's letting the person know, I've got your back. Mm-hmm. You're not alone in this. And and for being in challenging situations in my life, that's the only thing I ever wanted. And it's to know someone's with me through this storm. And, and that's what, um, throughout COVID and this pandemic, we're in this together. You know that catchphrase, we're in this together. Sure. That has helped a lot of people. Um, because it feels like it's just happening to me in my life. But it's not. It's happening around the world. And so we are in this together. But that's a more of a global catchphrase. Let's start showing people on a regular daily basis, hey, I got you. I know you're working long hours or you're stuck at home or you're lonely or you're, you've got all your kids. I hear you. That is what we can do to be a better citizen, a better friend, and to be able to get through this pandemic and decrease that anxiety and worry. Mm-hmm. Uh, Julie, I'm just looking at the website, misbehavior.ca, two S's there, friends, misbehavior.ca. And you have all these programs that we talked about, the burnout prevention program. You have the classroom management program and the misbehavior method program. These are all support services that you've researched over the years and put together. Uh, How do people get a hold of these or a hold of you? So they can go to the website and and or email and call and just say, hey, I'm interested in one of these programs or I have no idea what's going in my life. Can you please <laughs> come and talk to me and give me some direction? Well, I was just going to say, I heard you on the radio. <laughs> you sound like a really decent human being. Can we talk? That, yes, that, that would be absolutely. a good call, call to make, right? Absolutely. Anytime. All right, Julie, thank you for this. Happy New Year to you. It's always a pleasure to have you on the program. We'll make a date for an early appearance in 21 as well, okay? Sounds great. Happy New Year to you too, Sterling. We're joined on the line from Toronto by the president and CEO of Restaurants Canada, Todd Barkley, who will join us just after I remind you that without question, the hospitality sector of our economy has been hardest hit by COVID-19. And here's a good example. Food service was the fastest growing industry in Canada last year, generating $93 billion in sales. And that's just in 2019 alone. And now now, all half rather of all local restaurants are at risk of closing permanently within a year. In just a few minutes, we'll check in with the owner of one of our local Vancouver restaurants. But as mentioned, Todd Barkley joins us from Toronto from Restaurants Canada with an overview of what uh, what lurks around the corner in 2021. Todd Barkley, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you with us, Todd. It's not the happiest of times or circumstances under which to have a conversation, but it's a, it's a tough reality check season we've been through. Uh, what can you tell us about uh, the hospital? We're not, we're, we're not done yet. We're still right in the middle of the holiday break. But what can you tell us about expectations versus reality so far for holiday season 2020? Well, to your point, as you started this discussion, it's, it's been a devastating time for the industry. And the expectation is that will continue actually for quite a period of time. I mean, this is typically when restaurants are full across the country with various different guests enjoying time with us and great experiences and enjoying the holidays. This is a time when we uh, make money, put money in the bank in order to survive the toughest of months as we move into the winter. So as tough as the beginning of this pandemic was, looking back to March, April, and May of last year, mm-hmm. we are extremely, extremely worried about the impact of uh, forced closures across the country and forced restrictions in terms of how restaurants are going to be able to survive through the next three months. Todd, were you able to enjoy a moment or two of reprieve over the summer 
even though there were limitations on uh, indoor guests, uh, Canadian restaurants by and large were allowed uh, greater patio privileges and the ability to at least make a buck. Did that provide some relief? Certainly it helped. It, it, it really did. And in fact, we were quite lucky as an industry right across the country because the summer was quite good. So the patio season certainly did give us the chance to uh, you know, make it through in, 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 a, in a very tough period of time. And uh, we were very hopeful that uh, the patios would be allowed to stay open in various different regions across the country for a much uh, longer period of time. But unfortunately, as you know, in various different regions, they were, they were closed down, in some cases even in October. Uh, just remind us, because you're, you're uh, in Toronto this morning, and as of yesterday, Premier Ford and the uh, Ontario government uh, initiated a new level of lockdowns, which is supposed to stay in place, as I understand it, until the 28th of January. What what lockdowns specifically, Todd, are, are happening in, to Southern Ontario restaurants that, that the conditions weren't there a couple of days ago? So in many regions, it's true. There's a, a new lockdown that's been enforced, which is going to be for 28 days, so actually until the 25th. Uh, so there's some regions in, in Ontario which will be affected by that. In the northern regions, it's, it's a 14-day lockdown. But many, many regions across uh, Ontario were not affected by this. In fact, really only the Toronto area and York and, and uh, uh, some other areas peel around the Toronto area were right. affected by this. But many, many restaurants, you know, thousands of restaurants in Ontario uh, were forced to shut down as of uh, 12.01 yesterday morning. Right. And, and, they, and, and they're just closed. There's just no, no... How about curbside pickup, home delivery? That option still available? It's still available. So, yes, exactly. And that's one of the ways that uh, your guests can support restaurants right across the country is to, to continue to order through takeout and delivery, as well as buying gift cards. And this is a big part of what Restaurants Canada and the industry is really trying to bring forward to uh, our guests right across the country and that uh, restaurants play a big role in our lives. Yes. The places where we go to celebrate with our family and friends. And we're extremely worried that we're not going to be there to be able to support our communities in the ways that we have in the past with uh, various charities and sports teams. So, yes, we're looking for guests right across the country to continue to come to our restaurants through takeout and delivery and in the places such as in B.C. where you can still dine in, uh, please support your local restaurants. Absolutely. Now, here in B.C., the government also initiated uh, quite recently, Todd, a cap on the amount a, f- a third-party food provider service like a DoorDash or Uber Eats can charge for that service provision, knocked down from 20 or 30 percent to a maximum of 15. Uh, that is going to help uh, business for some restaurateurs. Do those uh, limitations exist elsewhere in Canada, or is this just a B.C. thing? Well, B.C. is very progressive, so I applaud your government in terms of the various different issues that they have in place. There are some other provinces who've done similar things, but unfortunately, they haven't included all restaurants. They've only included independents. B.C. has been very progressive and included all independents as well as chains and and various different franchise locations, which makes a lot of sense because what I think a lot of people forget about is that when you do support a local chain or, or franchisee, these are also individuals who are small business owners. Yes. So we really shouldn't be differentiating between them. So, yes, B.C., very progressive. There are some other regions, but uh, but B.C. has been, been wonderful in terms of enacting that for us and will be very helpful for the next three months. What about the federal programs, Todd? There have been wage subsidies and there have been uh, some, uh, there have been some not the smoothest of rollouts, but there has been some rent relief offerings from the feds and, uh, and, and a revision to the uh, EI system coming out of CERB. How has that uh, affected the restaurant industry in general? 
we, we're very thankful of the initiatives that the federal government has put in place to help restaurants. Uh, you're right. There's wage subsidies. There's also rent subsidies have been put in place. Uh, unfortunately, the rent subsidy wasn't rolled out uh, very well in the yeah. beginning. It was done to the landlords. So unfortunately, tenants couldn't, uh, couldn't take advantage of that if the landlords didn't. But here's the interesting thing for everybody to understand. As much as those fees or funds are in place to support restaurants, um, if you're only realizing maybe 5 to 10% of your revenues, having a wage subsidy or rent subsidy where you're still required to pay 35% of those costs, mm-hmm. the math just doesn't work. So as much as we appreciate the work that's been done, we want to continue to work with the federal government and with provincial governments to help to ensure that the, the funds that are in place will, will ensure that restaurants can survive through this very tough period of time. What uh, what sort of appetite do you sense? I know, for example, here in BC, the government, the provincial government, uh, ponied up one hundred and five million dollars just a couple of days ago for the tourism industry and support in that uh, area. They had asked for six hundred million. Uh, and, and what sort of appetite do you suspect exists for continued financial support from both the federal and, particularly, the provincial level? I'm very hopeful that there will continue to be opportunities for the uh, provincial governments to support our industry. You know, certainly there has been some help. Uh, We're hoping that there will be more. And in many of the discussions that I'm having with uh, various different uh, ministers and and, uh, uh, provincial governments across the country is to remind them that, I mean, we we can now see a light at the end of the tunnel, right? I mean, you know, certainly with the vaccine starting to come, there's going to be an opportunity for us to share those great experiences back in restaurants again. But there's still a period of time where we need support. And wouldn't it be awful for everything that's already happened to be in a position where over the next three months that support goes away and those restaurants that were able to keep themselves alive, unfortunately, also go away. Yeah. So we're having lots of great discussions and I'm very hopeful that there'll be continued support. Uh, but there's much more work to do. Yeah, and you and I both know that uh, in, in the terms of the hospitality industry, especially restaurants, January is a real dead zone. It's really a slow, slow month. And, uh, of course, typically that's when a lot of restaurants and chains put on promotions and, and those sorts of things to generate a little extra traffic. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the sad reality is that if you've hung on and are still uh, uh, here to tell the story uh, going into the the new year um, and, and knowing that that dry, that dry patch of, of winter is still ahead and knowing even more that you can actually see the light at the end of the tunnel with the vaccines and maybe even your turn by the summertime it's just it's just it, it's so close and yet so far away isn't it Todd we're so close you're, you're absolutely right and, and I appreciate all the comments that you just made we, we have we can see the light of the tunnel, as I mentioned. And as you also mentioned, this is such a tough time for restaurants. It's, it's a time when, yes, there's various different promotions in place to try to get people to come back yeah. and enjoy great experiences. You know, obviously, that's not going to happen this year in the same way. Uh, so we're really looking to communities across the country to know and understand that we're going to be there. We're, we're a huge part of the economy. We're the fourth largest industry in the economy. We employ over 1.2 million people. There's two, still 260,000 people who have lost their jobs because of this pandemic in the hospitality industry. Mm-hmm. We can very quickly help the economy get back up and going again. We just need the support of communities across the country to come out and as I say, take out delivery and also buy gift cards and just get us through these next few months so that we can be there to support their communities and the economy 
once this is all over. Yeah, it's good to have you on the program this morning, uh, Todd. Doing the homework just to, in advance of your appearance this morning, I did not know, for example, that the food service sector was responsible for as much as $93 billion in one year alone, and that was last year. Uh, it, it really does. It, and, and all of those jobs, Todd, that's the most important. It's important, it's kind of depressing, and that makes it even more important. All those jobs, Todd. It's the jobs in the industry in terms of the restaurants, but it's also all the jobs that support this industry. Yes. 95 cents of every dollar that goes into a restaurant every day goes back out to the community, whether that's for people who are in the janitorial service or in HVAC or the florist or various different distribution companies, food companies that support the restaurant industry. So it's not just the restaurants. It's also the entire economy that surrounds the restaurant industry. And as I mentioned, you know, certainly we are ready to get going again. We just need the support to get through this very tough time. RestaurantsCanada.org is an outstanding website, just loaded with resources for people in the hospitality industry. Todd Barkley is the president and CEO of Restaurants Canada. Todd, great to speak to you. I appreciate the opportunity to do so. Happy New Year to you, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks so much for supporting restaurants. I appreciate your time. Our pleasure entirely. My son's a chef. Continuing our look at expectations in the restaurant industry, we're local now. We were talking to the president and CEO of Restaurants Canada. Now we're back in Vancouver with Matthew Senecal Junkier on the line. Matthew is the owner of The Birds and the Beats with two locations at 55 Powell Street and 54 Alexander Street in Vancouver. Matthew, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you with us on the website, of course. Uh, you're uh, reflecting uh, the, the thoughts and uh, of a lot of restaurateurs. Menu is temporary limited due to COVID. It's called pivoting. How's it going? You know, it could it could be a lot worse, but it's certainly um, it's certainly really tough times for us. Uh, where we're situated in Gastown was usually a really vibrant neighborhood with you know flocks of tourists, big full office buildings, and just tons of people sort of meandering the beautiful old street. Sure. But, um, obviously that's not really the, the reality in that neck of the woods anymore. Um, so I think, you know, we're seeing not just us, but all hospitality businesses in the area suffering, retailers suffering, um, kind of feeling a real cascading effect uh, that's, you know, been going on for, you know, a length of time that was almost hard to imagine at the start of this crisis. So. Absolutely. Matthew, have you been able to take advantage of any of the f- programs that were support programs offered by government? We certainly have. Um, the wage subsidy was a huge lifeline for us. Um, so b- basically, um, early in the pandemic, the government sponsored or, or subsidized a portion of wages, depending on what your decline in sales were. Right, yeah. Um, and, and quite bluntly, we wouldn't have survived had it not been for that program. And I think many other restaurateurs would have been in the same boat. How's, uh, how are you functioning now in terms, of, in terms of accommodating traffic? Is most of the business pickup or home delivery? Do you still have any in or on-site dining, Matthew? And if so, what percentage of your seating is available? We're, um, so we're breakfast and lunch, so a lot of eggs, sandwiches, and yeah. stuff like that. So yeah. It doesn't necessarily travel as well as maybe, t- you know, Thai food or pizza for dinner. Sure. Um, so we do about 50% of our food is now takeout and 50% is dine-in. Um, every space is a little bit different, but we've lost about 40% of our seating capacity. Um, so we went from about 60 effective seats to just a little, uh, 
Yeah, a little bit under 30, maybe 28 right now. Were you able to take advantage of any patio add-on features over the summer months? Yeah, we were extremely lucky. Um, the city reacted really quickly, um, and we got a whole full five parking spots, which was an absolute savior in the summer. Um, we're still sort of living off of those fumes. Um, and it was really encouraging to see that the city is going to extend that program again next summer. And, um, yeah, we were really hopeful that they might consider extending it indefinitely because it was pretty – it was a lot of fun to just even walk through the streets and see other restaurants and patios kind of have some – vibrancy and life outside on the city streets. It, it did a have a program. it did have a certain buzz to it now, didn't it? It was Absolutely. kind of it was kind of cool. I enjoyed that. So, let's get real about uh between now and patios again and it might be as early as uh, maybe even late March, early April here in Vancouver, Matthew, but between now and then, how are you going to make it? I think these are going to be the four sort of toughest months, the make or break months. Um traditionally in the restaurant business, the time after the holidays it's a slow period. Pretty soft, yeah. So it's hard to say. I mean, this year everything's everything's upside down. So it's hard to say, you know, what this little season will be like. But I think, you know, for us, we're sort of on our final. You know, we're in the final stretch, and um, we were greatly encouraged that the government extended a rent subsidy program that helps us cover sort of eighty percent of. I guess eighty percent of the decline in our in our sales to our fixed costs, which right. is sort of the huge for in our business. You know, those are the if your sales are down fifty percent, you simply cannot cover the full fixed costs over a long period of time like that. Well, it's good that you're getting some assistance there. And by the way, friends, if you are interested in uh, breakfast or lunch from the Birds and the Beats, you just go online to birdsandbeats.ca. It's a cute little uh, menu, Matthew, and uh, very, very functional. We thank you for joining us this morning, sir, and we wish you success in making it through to patio season in 21. Thanks very much for having me. There's Matthew Senecal-Junkir from the Birds and the Beats, two locations in Vancouver. Well, here's a little factoid for the last Sunday of 2020. Nearly one in four, 23% of Canadians have been victims of package theft. Imagine what the value of that must be. Here to talk about it and tell us more is Nicole McKnight. Nicole is the PR manager with Finder Canada. Nicole, good morning. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, it's good to have you with us. That's a pretty staggering number. 23% of Canadians have been victims of package theft. What yeah. is there a dollar figure that you could attach to that? Yeah, that actually works out to about $784 million wow. of packages that have been in value. Because we asked Canadians, you know, the amount and we got sort of an average number of you know, what their packages were worth. And that's, that's the kind of the big figure, the 784 million. Well, I'm looking at the uh, web. I'm sorry. I'm looking at the website. No, it no, says yeah. Canadians, one in 10 of us who have had a package pinched said that mm-hmm. it was, it was worth more than 250 bucks too. Exactly. Yeah. So you have some of those bigger ticket items being, being taken as well. Um, and definitely this time of year, now we're in sort of that boxing week sales period. I mean, it was the biggest online shopping 
sales season ever due to the pandemic. Sure. And I think the packages could just continue rolling in right now. Uh, so it's definitely a big issue. So what sort of anxiety has this produced? Again, this is a product mm-hmm. of, of the strangeness of 2020, which mercifully, yeah. Nicole, is almost over. <laughs> but yes, mercifully. <laughs> nonetheless, nonetheless, we have coexisted with each other and this unknown thing for mm-hmm. uh, for a long time now. And that we've that's elevated the national anxiety level. Would you not agree? Yes. Yes, exactly. I mean, we asked Canadians how worried they were about, you know, this holiday season and about package left. And one in three Canadians said they were either worried or very worried about it. Um, it was very much top of mind with them. So, so yeah, there is, there is a national anxiety about it. Um, and then, you know, there's sort of the what actions are people going to take as a result of that anxiety? Well, that's it, because you can either, you know, sit back and, and hope it doesn't happen to you, or you can maybe get one of those doorbell cameras or some kind of surveillance gear. What are people saying about that? Yeah, so, I mean, British Columbians specifically, um, you know, they were a little bit less likely to have experienced package thefts, so about one in five versus the national average of one in four. Mm, okay. Um, but, but at the same time, um, about one in three of them said that they would, you know, you know, t- or sorry, three in 10 British Columbians plan to per- purchase either package insurance um, or home security. Like you said, those sort of doorbell uh, cameras and all that sort of thing. So, one, you know, three in 10 are willing to take action, essentially, to protect themselves. Now, you talked about British Columbia having, uh, on a per capita or percentage mm-hmm. basis, fewer porch pirate uh, ripoffs mm-hmm. than other parts of Canada. So where are the most then, Nicole? Yeah, so so essentially BC is the safest when you compare it to all the other provinces in regards to porch pirates. Um, you know, Alberta had about twenty six percent, Saskatchewan thirty two, uh, Ontario and Quebec twenty three, mm. um, Nova Scotia nineteen percent, and BC was eighteen percent, making it around that one in five. So Saskatchewan uh, so, uh, is the home of the bad guys, by the sounds of things. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Saskatchewan does take the cake for the most porch pirates and, you know, closely followed by, by Alberta. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's an issue, honestly, all over Canada, but, but yeah, definitely some nuances between the provinces. The part that I'm enjoying most about having uh, looked at some of the material and some of the homework mm-hmm. you've done is you mm-hmm. broke, you've broken us down into different groups in terms of our degrees of anxiety and our willingness mm-hmm. to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Talk to, yeah. us, talk to us a little bit about those who are most nervous and those who are most proactive. Yeah, for sure. So, so like I said, um, you know, kind of touched on the regional aspect yeah. um, about, you know, what British Columbians are willing to do. But, but yeah, when you're looking at um, gender, we noticed, you know, a little bit of difference, but, but not too much. I think really age is where we got into um you know, big differences. So that might come down to who's more likely to even do the online shopping. So, oh, okay, you look sure. at, you know, Gen Z, which is 24 and under, millennials 25 to 39, they're far more likely to have experienced package theft, you know, looking at like 30%, 28% versus the older generations. Simply which because more hovering around 15%. That's right, because younger people will shop online faster and more often than I, their older yeah. counterparts, right? I think so, yes. And I mean, we also notice some nuances in household income. Um, so it seemed like Canada's richest and poorest are experiencing, um, you know, having, you know, more worry around, around package theft. And um, the, it generally, though, what we found was that the more you earn, the more likely you're, you'd have a package stolen, which, again, makes sense because you may be purchasing more often. True. 
all of that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, just under a quarter of Canadians, you know, making say 20,000 to 40,000 had had a package stolen, um, you know, versus 31% that were in those higher income brackets. So there are those nuances with income. Um, I was going to ask. Yeah. You, I was going to also ask you about uh, being willing to maybe p- play, pay rather an extra uh, a surcharge, mm-hmm. Nicole, to have the package insured by the or uh, from the point of delivery to your place. Do, do people use that remedy? Yeah, and and, and so when we asked um, in general, people are doing that a little bit. I think it also depends on the retailer. Certain retailers. Um, you know, you may not need to pur- purchase package insurance and, you know, Amazon, for example, is, you know, we all know that as, as the, the, the big, the big one in yeah. terms of online shopping, they have sometimes been a bit more forgiving with those sort of things and they'll, you know, give refunds and to their, to their loyal customers. Um, so it, I think it really depends if, if the retailer itself is not, you know, not as flexible, then then package insurance makes complete sense to to give that extra layer of protection. Indeed. And in British Columbia, about 12% of people said that they would purchase package insurance, and about 10% said that they do both package insurance and insure that that home security aspect as well. Well, good for so, British Columbians, Nicole. Good for us. We're, we're doing yeah. okay. <laughs> Relatively speaking, we're doing okay. I'm fresh mm-hmm. out of time. I am grateful for yours. Mm-hmm. All of these uh, results, friends, can be found at finder.com. Nicole McKnight is Finder's PR manager for Canada. Okay. Happy New Year, Nicole, and thanks for this. Happy New Year, Sterling. Thank you so much. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.